All right, so let me just kind of get a um, a lay of the land here. This is not going to make me feel any different about you. I need you to be honest. I just want to know who I'm talking to because that helps, right? Because I, I want to be able to kind of anticipate questions and that kind of thing. So the, the topic that we're talking about over the next six weeks is, is God's sovereignty, specifically God's sovereignty in salvation. And so that... that that topic has several names. Calvinism is uh, probably the most known one. Predestination. Uh, another one. Uh, Reformed theology uh, would be a third. So, how many of you uh, are consider yourself, you know, knowledgeable? Uh, you're a you're a Calvinist or in, and you're just here for a refresher course. How many? Pretty good. Okay, how many of you think you probably would be a Calvinist, but you're not exactly sure what it is? Okay, that's fair. That's fair. Thank you for being honest. How many of you, from what you know about Calvinism, you think it's awful, and you would never be one of those people, and you're here to see how dumb it is? Anybody? No? Is there, I, seriously, it, and I know this is a hard crowd to answer in front of, and I get it if you're just scared to raise your hand, but is there anybody like opposed to it? That does matter to me as a teacher. Like, so that I, I don't have any kind of emotional hurdles and we can talk bad about people who don't believe this. Is that just kidding. We would not do that. Okay. Uh, thank you. That's helpful. Now um, let me give you a little bit of a, a history of Calvinism and uh, and why it is so uh, rare in the American church and why it needs to be recovered, and then we're going to dive right into this first topic, which is which is broader than just, Calvinism typically is, is a view just of salvation, and we're, we're talking about a broader, the broader topic of the entire Bible, the history of the world, that kind of thing, and how God has a plan about for it all. So, but let's, let's just do a little history first. Um, Calvinism comes out of the Great Reformation, if you like to call it that. The Great Reformation uh, was in the 16th century, started in 1512, and really was a, an era when the Bible was rediscovered in the church. Um, the uh, the Bible had kind of been lost through the years as far as not being the primary uh, teaching device that the church used. They, they There was... Uh, difference of opinion about whether it should be translated into people's speaking languages. They kept it in Latin, and um, the, they being the uh, the church, the, the Catholic Church, the only church at the time in the Western world. And the Bible was, was discovered. Martin Luther, uh, William Huss, William Tyndale, they found it and they started reading it and started reading it in its original languages and discovered these great doctrines of justification by faith and justification. Uh, by grace and uh, the, the whole world being under and, and live, existing for the glory of God, so Deo Gloria, and uh, so that was all rediscovered, and and that's during that era. One of the teachers, one of the main influential teachers, the one who wrote the most and who wrote the most uh, eloquently and most systematically, was named John Calvin. Uh, he's, he was French. He. Uh, this is also about in God's providence. The Reformation took its place at the same time that the printing press was invented, 
And so uh, the Word of God was able to be gotten out uh, into the hands of people very easily for the first time in history. And people were reading it, and they read a lot of Calvin. Uh, just a little trivia question. There's trivia night here coming in a few weeks. Uh, before the printing press, there were no grammar walls. Right? Like everybody just kind of wrote more or less their own way, but it didn't really matter because was no nothing was getting broadly distributed. And so after the printing press, different nations had to be like, okay, well, this is the correct way to do it. And John Calvin was the model for France. French uh, for centuries, actually. So, you know, no small guy. He was influential, very important. And he wrote more books than I've ever, I'm ever going to read. And um, he, uh, he really systematized the Reformed faith. Now, it was very important for him and for Martin Luther and all of their friends that they had discovered nothing new. That this was a, a re-finding of uh, the, the teachings of St. Augustine and Chrysostom and, the, the, and Ambrose and the church fathers and ultimately of the Apostle Paul and Jesus. And it was nothing new. It was just something that had gotten, uh, had been, people had gotten away from, and so he's, they're bringing them back. That's why the phrase is the Reformation. It's not like this new thing. They were teaching the, the true doctrines of the Bible that had always been there and that it, when the church was the strongest had been taught. Now, so this doctrine, this, this, this Calvinism, uh, whatever you want to call it, it, it's not a new thing, and it's not a small thing, it's not a rare thing. It was Christianity, uh, especially in the English-speaking uh, Western European world for hundreds of years, and um, so you, until, uh, really until the Second Great Awakening. So bring it up, come up into American history. And uh, the, during the first, there were two big revivals in American history. Remember those? First Great Awakening had, uh, remember the First Great Awakening, huge revival uh, right around, before, the, uh, before the founding of the country in, in the 18th century. Uh, you remember any of the names involved with that? Yeah, Jonathan Edwards, right. Who else? George Whitfield, right. Correct, John Wesley. That's right. His brother Charles Wesley it was a it was a revival really around the whole English-speaking world in both in Wales and England and in America, and um, and that was a very um, that it was a a, a a revival in the sense that they didn't expect it, and God just started converting all these people out of nowhere. Jonathan Edwards would, you know, he would, the way he would deliver sermons is he would hold the paper up like this because you could barely see. And he would hold a candle and he'd just read it. And uh, during the revival, when the Lord started converting people, he would have to stop reading and say, because they would be crying and sobbing and begging to know how to be saved. And he'd be like, please stop that so I can read. And, and so. There wasn't a lot of drama. There was no theatrics to get people, you know, to be emotionally manipulated. Uh, and, and hundreds of people got converted. And that's kind of what uh, what we, what Reformed people would refer to as a true revival. Uh, typically, you only know when you've been a part of a true revival when you look back on it. Right? So I think I was, I was in one. I didn't know it. Uh, in Nashville in, uh, in the early 90s, late 80s, for about five years... 
the Lord, the Lord's Spirit just did a tremendous work, and, and thousands of people were converted. And uh, part of that was on the campus at Vanderbilt, where I was. We had this little Bible study, and uh, this campus minister was there. He walk in, he talked, and we had no music. We had no overhead projector. We didn't have anything, right? And we would just jam into a room, and, and I would tell a couple of jokes and make announcements, but we didn't really have anything to announce because we didn't do anything. And then he would preach for an hour, and it was we'd have like 150 students packed in just hanging on every word. And uh, there was another church. There were several churches involved. Belmont was one. Bethel was one. Um, there's a church out in Franklin called Christ Community Church. It had a sanctuary that held about 250 comfortably. And we'd, they packed like... They had four services every Sunday, and a total of 3,000 people would jam in there. People were sitting in the windowsills, um, just getting, you know, converted out of nowhere. And um, and then I thought that was normal. I was like, oh, that's what ministry's like, right? And so for years, I was like, I thought I was doing something wrong, because I got in the ministry, and I would preach, and 12 people would come, and I had to pay them. And, uh, you know, I later found out, looking back on it, I was like, oh, that was a revival. Darn, I missed it. I didn't know... But uh, they, they, that's kind of what we, what we would call a true revival. Then uh, in, the, in the 19th century, there was another uh, revival in America called the Second Great Awakening. And there were places where it was true and, and beautiful, and there were places where it was really abused. Um, there was a, a president of Yale, his name Timothy Dwight, and he was really sad about the number of unbelievers he had on campus and so he started um, back then they all had to go to chapel once a week and he would go to chapel and he would just do apologetic messages not uh, just straight out and students started getting converted and, uh, and that was a beautiful thing uh, there was a, another preacher who, who started going around uh, preaching and doing um, crusades and his name was Charles Finney and he became really famous, and his, basically his message was, anybody can have a revival if you do it right. And, uh, and he said that the reason why preachers weren't having more conversions is they weren't doing it right. And he set up a lot of the, uh, the methods for evangelism that are still used today. Like he, was the one, he was the first preacher to use altar calls and to draw it out and to use music to kind of get in there and, and manipulate. And he would, uh, he would go further. He was way worse than anybody y'all know, not, I promise. He would, uh, he would pray for people's sins from the pulpit. He, and so he would, like, he would look out and go, Father in heaven, I really pray that you convert Kevin Foley and uh, cause him to, to give up his evil sins of alcohol and to quit cheating on his wife. And, uh, you know, Kevin Foley comes up front and gets converted that Sunday because it's important. Uh, he's going to get in trouble, right? And he would do that kind of thing quite often. And he had these benches, and he would call people up to sit on the benches. And uh, he called them anxious benches, and he would yell at them. And, 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 and he was an incredibly uh, charismatic personality and a real presence to him. And, and people, for good and for ill, got converted. It really did. That those methods just swept over the Southwest, and it became the standard kind of theology of uh, the Southern United States. 
and it, it is still to this day. Um, this idea that anybody can be saved, all you got to do is pray this prayer, and we kind of water it down. We make Christianity a very simplistic in an effort to make the door as, as easy to get into as possible, and um, and just with no real uh, emphasis on repentance, no emphasis on uh, the fruit of the Spirit and revealing the truth of your conversion. It was just a bare um, profession of faith was all that was necessary. And I got all up in that when I was in college. You know, I, I did that kind of stuff. Got all up in it. Uh, went to the beach uh, crusades and. We would, if people would pray the prayer with us, we would write the date down in the back of their uh, Bibles and tell them, you, you never doubt whether you're a Christian again. You know, remember this date. You're going to heaven. And uh, and then that just created all kinds of problems. It really did. Uh, problems that we see today. Um, you know, we're trying, I, I, I think, I think America's at a crossroads. Um not Christianity. The church is fine. Christianity's doing great. Probably never done better. But America's in kind of at a crossroads. And and the gospel needs to be rediscovered. We need an awakening. And the problem is everybody thinks they already know what we have to offer. Because uh, this, this very simplistic message of the gospel has replaced uh, the truths of who Christ is and the claims that he makes and uh, you know, he calls us to, to give up our lives, and and those who hear him and see him can't help but give it up to follow him. Um, that's been replaced with these with people who just don't have changed lives; they're just not different. And um, as a result of that, we have millions of people running around who think they are Christians who aren't. We have millions of people rejecting the faith, and they don't even know what the faith is that they're rejecting. Like. Most people who are that I've talked to who are rejecting the church right now, I just want to go look. I'm rejecting everything you are. You don't even know. I, I want you to see that there's a whole different version of church and of the gospel. What you're rejecting is worthy of to be rejected. It's not Christianity. So, like for example, when I was a campus minister, we had a girl in our ministry from Belgium. Her name was Anique. I, wonder how, what, I have no idea what she's doing now. I would love to find out. But uh, she was from Belgium, and she was great. And it was a real small campus. And, you know, most people were from, like, three counties in Mississippi. So to have somebody from another country, she was like a superstar on campus. And she did everything because she didn't have anything else to do, right? She didn't have anything to go home with. And so she started coming to our Bible study, and we'd be nice to her. And some friends took her to a Cademan's Call concert at uh, Mississippi State actually drove across the state with her, went to the concert. On the way back, she starts asking questions about Christianity. They tell her what Jesus did, ask her if she wants to go to heaven, had to explain to her that she's going to go to hell. Otherwise, either Jesus is going to pay for your sins or you are. Do you want to go to heaven? Sure, I want to go to heaven. Great. You know, trust Jesus. Okay, I do. Great. And that was right at the end of the semester, and then summer break came. And then at the fall, in the fall, she didn't come back to RUF, and we were sad, and we couldn't figure out why she wasn't coming, and she didn't seem interested to talk to us, and so my intern went, made an appointment with her, bought her lunch, and she said, hey, you know, what's going on, are you, you know, she said, I'm, I'm not 
I'm not going to Bible study anymore. She said, are you, are, do you still think you're a Christian? She goes, no, I, I was never a Christian. And she said, Why, what do you mean? And she said, well, over the summer I read the Bible. And the Bible says if I want to be a Christian, I have to stop having sex. And I have no intention of doing that. So I'm out. You know, nobody told me that. Right? So it's just this kind of sales pitch of you want to go to heaven, believe this, you're in. And that's not the Bible, and it's not the gospel. And so we want to rediscover this full gospel uh, that changes lives, that, that is, in and of itself has this incredible power to it. Um, you know, I grew up with this kind of everything's up to you mentality. God didn't like me until I prayed the prayer, then he did like me. And, but he didn't. But I wasn't spirit-filled because my life was still a mess. And I was being told that if I still struggle with sin, it's because I wasn't spirit-filled and Jesus wasn't on the throne of my life. And I thought he was on the throne of my life and I was trying to do everything right. But I still struggled with sexual temptation and all these you know, inner struggles that wouldn't go away. And I had Bible verses all over my uh, walls. So nowhere I, anywhere I looked in my dorm room, I saw the Bible and I was getting up early. Uh, but I was still slothful and, and barely, barely hanging in there, not failing out of school. And, and I was just a mess. I knew I was a mess. And I couldn't fix it. And I kept trying to, you know, I was like, well, just, let's just ditch Christianity. And I would tell God that I didn't believe in him. And he would say, then who are you talking to? And that was always weird. And then, uh, I, I, but I just got so burned out trying harder and harder. And then uh, I went in to see my campus minister, um, and I, I just dumped all my junk out on the floor. It kind of vomited all over me. You know? I was like, these are all the things that are going wrong. And he said, well, I told him my story of growing up in a small little redneck town where everybody went to church, but nobody was a Christian. You know, all the immorality that was going on there. And, and he said, well, let, let's just slow down. He said, can let me just take one issue? What's one thing you want me to fix? And I said, well, it's, you know, I, I was estranged from my dad. I was like, I, I wish you'd fix that. That's been going on the long. What, do you, what should I do about that? And so he said, well, when your dad left your mom, why didn't you go with him? And I thought that was the dumbest question, so I refused to answer it. And he said, well, what makes you so much better than him? And I said, well, I'm a Christian, and he's not. He said, well, why? He said, I don't understand. He goes, well, you told me that you were the only Christian in your high school. He said, as far as I know, the only male Christian. He said, did any of your friends go to church? Well, they all went to church. Did any of them go to better churches than you did? They all went to better churches than I did. Did any of them have better families than you did? Well, they all had dads at home except for me. Okay, well, then why are you a Christian and they're not? Why are you so much better than them? And I had no answer. I thought the answer was because I was better than that. I knew that couldn't be the answer. I knew the answer had to have something to do with grace. Right? Jesus has to be the answer. Um, But I didn't know how. And he began to explain to me sin and total depravity and uh, God's unconditional election and His love that was not earned. He couldn't be lost. And I never heard any of that stuff. But as I began to study it, 
all these this weight, this burden of having to save myself, it just fell off. And I was able to have assurance of salvation for the first time in my whole life. And I experienced joy in the gospel for the first time in my whole life. And I want that for you. And so that's that's why we, we study it. That's why we're going to hold on to it. And we're going to teach it uh, forever and ever. This is who we are as a church. It's, it's These are the doctrines that formed the church. And we're going to uh, hold on to them uh, forever and ever and ever. So let's get into them, okay? Any questions about that? Any, I just gave you about 500 years of history. We're good. We got it all clear as a bell. All right. You really can ask questions if you want to. I tend to get excited, right? So I make it hard to stop. But you can stop me anyway. Okay, let's go. So the first thing I want you to understand uh, about this is, uh, let's go and flip this, is I got great news for you. And that great news is that God has a plan. God is, is sovereign over history. That, there, that this whole world, this, this, this experience that we call this earth, um, you know, the Milky Way galaxy, the universe, uh, world history, all of it, it's not just chance. It's not chaos. Now, we're not, like, just wondering what's going to happen next. God didn't create us and just kind of roll the dice and go, well, I wonder what's going to happen there, you know. And he doesn't just kind of, you know, look, wake up every morning and go, oh, that was a mistake. Let me jump in there and fix that and then pull back out. Um, but there, there's one story in the Bible, and God is God is, has written it. He is the author of the story. Uh, Hebrews says he is the author and the finisher of our faith. He is, uh, think of it, you really can't actually, there's a lot of good um, uses to think of it as a, a play, like a stage play. God wrote the play, called it World History. It's going somewhere. He is an actor. He directs the play. He He's there telling the, the characters where to go, and he's making sure everybody's going in the right place. And then from time to time, he shows up as an actor in the play, right? We can all think of one big time he showed up as an actor, right? Jesus, you're familiar with that guy. Uh, the Holy Spirit, you're familiar with him. Sometimes he comes in and he kind of does things on his own, but usually he lets us act and he just directs. And and this play, it has a point. And you can see that point uh, just by looking at, at two chapters out of the Bible. If you, if you ever get bored one night, bored enough to read the Bible... Look at Genesis 2 and Revelation 21 and 20. No, 21 and 22. Because you, you see this beautiful parallel. That God created the world and he built a garden uh, for humans. And uh, the garden has a river flowing through it and has a tree of life in it and a tree of good and evil in it. And... Uh, is gold in it and uh, onyx in it and, and bdellium, whatever that is in it. And it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's valuable and it's big and, and these rivers go out to water the earth. And then uh, sin happens, right? And you have the next 66 books. And then you get back and Revelation 22 is this vision of 
of what's coming, the world to come, the new creation, and it's a garden. And the tree of life is there. And the river of life is flowing down the middle of it. And there are roads there that are paved with gold. And the, the gates there are built of onyx and bedellium, whatever that is. And it's the same garden, but it's, it's developed and it's better. Because evil got into this garden. And sin got into this garden and wrecked it. And God knew that was going to happen. But rather than go, okay, that's awful and I'm not going to create that world. He, he created and sustained this world and guided it toward this end where nothing evil will ever enter. And where all every tear from our eyes will be wiped away. And, and the only way that makes any sense to me is the, to understand that from that perspective, when we are finally in heaven and we're able to see God face to face, we will look back over our lives and go, everything happened exactly the way it should have happened. That was the only way that could have worked and gotten me here. And this is, this is the good news that God is sovereign over history. He has a plan. Even when things seem to be falling apart, he has a plan in it. The Apostle Paul brings that out in, in Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11. Romans 9, 10, and 11, they are, they're hard. they are hard sledding. Okay? There's no, nothing easy in that section of the Bible. But it's important sledding. And, and he's kind of anticipating these questions from the Gentiles because... What's going on in history at that point is, uh, as you know, the Jews in Jerusalem rejected Christianity, right? This little thing called crucifixion. And uh, it didn't end with Jesus. They, they persecuted all the Christians, and, and people were getting converted, and there was this huge revival uh, right there at, uh, in Pentecost. The Holy Spirit comes down, thousands of people get converted off the bat. They're gathering in churches, they're, they're worshiping together, they're fellowshipping together, they're studying the apostles' teachings. But the, the Jewish uh, powers that be, the, the Pharisees and the synagogues and in the temples, they don't like that. And they start trying to stamp it out. And, you know, you, you read about that in Acts. This guy named Saul who's going around trying to arrest every, every Jew who's, who's converted to Christianity. He wants to arrest them and have them, have them kicked out of the synagogues and, and beaten. And and that kept going on even after Saul got converted. And that was causing um, this kind of tension. Can you imagine if you were a Christian in those days? Like, you know, obviously, you'd be a new Christian because there's no old Christian. And you're looking at this going, God's on our side. This doesn't seem to be going the way I would think it would go. right? Because the people who've known him the longest are rejecting him. And these people, these Gentiles, they're believing in him. And that's just weird. Why would he reject the Jews? And, and so Paul delves into that in chapters 9, 10, 11. And he talks about how God knows what he's doing. And he's going to, uh, he, he makes his sovereign choices. And you can't really uh, debate him and argue with him. He just does what he does. But what you can do is, is rest that he knows what he's doing and he's, He's doing it for a purpose, and he says, uh, you know, he, he's rejected the Jews for now, a partial hardening with, of the Jews. He's not rejected them. They're, they're free to come at any time they want, but they have been had their minds covered with a hardness and he's, so that the Christians can come in. What, what is he talking about? He said, well, that, that persecution that was going on in Jerusalem 
sent these new Christians out all, all into the world. The Apostle Peter calls them the dispersion. When he writes in 1 Peter, he says to the Christians in the dispersion. When John writes the book of Revelation, it's, it's, it's uh, addressed to the church in tribulation, the church that's surviving this persecution out in the world. The Christians couldn't stay at home. They had to go to new places, and they were taking the gospel with them. And Paul says he, he's doing this for a purpose so that it's life for the Gentiles. He knows what he's doing, and, it, and then he gets this really weird part where he says, and then he's going to bring the Jews back in, and the weird part about this is nobody knows if that's already happened, or if it's a future event still, because we got 2,000 years of history. I'm not going there. Um, but then he sums it up with this beautiful passage. He says, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, and how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. He's saying God knows what he's doing. You can trust him. He's the Lord of history. And we see that not only through the big picture, but through the small, smaller pictures all the way through. The, all through. That God... Is sovereign over history. It's not chaos or chance. And we know that because he gives us prophecies. He gives us specific prophecies. Right? And he he tells us that um, when my servant comes, he's going to be crushed and beaten and wounded. Uh, and, and he will see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He tells us that uh, when Jesus comes, he's going to be born of a virgin. He tells us uh, these very specific details so that we would know him when he comes. He tells us it's going to be in Bethlehem, not, not one of the big cities, this little town uh, where, uh, where Rachel died. It's, it's, it's this town of, of weeping. And Rachel, I'll go with Rachel. Um, it's, a, it's, a, yeah, Rachel. Um, it's a city of, of, of weeping in a small town, but, but God's picked it out. He, he, he he gives us these prophecies, and all along the way, they're a comfort to us, that he has a plan for us. He has a plan. And he's working that plan out. It's not chaos. He's working this plan out. One of my favorite places to see that is in Isaiah. If you have a Bible, I didn't give you this passage in the text, but you can write it down. This would be a good time to get this sheet out if you don't have it. Everything up until now has just kind of been riffing, but we're going to go through this. And I'll mention a lot of Bible passages that I didn't put on here, but you can write this down if you want. So, we still have a long way to go. We're doing great. Um, Isaiah 45 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. This is beautiful, right? So, Israel. They've been, um, they've been taken captive to uh, Babylon and uh, there's a small remnant still in Israel there's a larger remnant that refuses to go into Babylon there's there's a, a, a large number of them that's been kidnapped and taken into Babylon and they're waiting when are we going to get to go home when do we get to go home and um, and God tells them in Isaiah when the, when the fullness of time has come when, when, when you've suffered when you've been there long enough I think, I think it was 70 years but I'm not good at math and he says this, uh, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, 
not to Jesus, but to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open the doors before him, the gates that may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I give you the treasures of darkness and hordes and secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you by name. I love this. I name you, though you don't know me. I am the Lord. There is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me. The people may know, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being. I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And it's fascinating. He's, He's saying... I'm about to send Cyrus. He is going to be a warrior unlike any warrior before him. He's going to destroy Babylon. He's going to free the Jews. And he's going to do all the things I want him to do. And he doesn't even know me. He's not doing them on purpose. He's not like asking God, God, what do you want me to do today? I'm going to use him. He doesn't even know who I am. But I'm telling you this beforehand so you'll know that I am the Lord. I am the Lord. My prophecies have this purpose of showing you that I am sovereign over history. And and that sovereignty is, is vast and in, in, includes the, the whole big story of, of Christianity starting out with this little bitty group of people, of 12 people scared to death on the day of the crucifixion. And then the resurrection, there's only 11 of them. And then they, actually only 10, because Thomas is gone and Judas is gone. And from that little room of 10 very scared men, Four pretty brave women, actually. Um, we have a religion that's, that's taking over the whole world. It's in every country. It's all over the world. You know where the most, where the most Christians per capita are in the world today? Right, Nigeria. Nigeria, the most Christian country in the world. You know where the most Presbyterians in the world are? Uh, Ghana, Africa. I have no idea how that happened. Uh, I don't. I have no idea. But evidently, there's a ton of Presbyterians there. So, um, anyway, so let's talk about God's sovereignty a little bit. Let's flip the board. We're reformed now. We can erase this. All right. All right, we're going to go fast. Ready? So what does all this God's sovereignty include? It includes free decisions. I hate dry markers. includes free decisions. What do I mean? The Westminster Confession says uh, God has preordained, foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in such a way to do no violence to the will of his creatures. It does not make him the author of sin and in such a way that the contingency of secondary causes is established. This is important because everybody gets this wrong. Everybody gets this wrong. Calvinists are the last people in the world to believe in free will. We do. We believe that people have free will because the Bible says they do. They make their own decisions. They make all the wrong decisions 
and they will never decide God on uh, just make a decision for God because they're broken and blinded. But that's next week's topic. But, but they make their free decisions. Cyrus wasn't asking God what he wanted to do. Uh, Pharaoh did exactly what God said Pharaoh was going to do, but he did it himself. He made his own decisions. He does his own thing. You are here today by your own decision. And God's wisdom and will is so vast. Like Our problem is we just can't understand that. Um, one of the first theologians was named Athanasius. And Athanasius said, uh, the root of all heresy is the thought that if I can't understand it, it must not be true. And that is wrong, right? I mean, Athanasius was right. His point was right. And true theology is all based on revelation and what God shows us. And what God shows us is that he is big enough that he can let us be free. We can all make our own decisions, and yet we always do exactly what he knew we were going to do. And he sustains us so that what we do works together uh, for his plan. Uh, we, God is not forcing us to make the decisions we make. You made them. God's plan is big enough. He is sovereign over free decisions. I'll get back to that in a minute. He is sovereign over pain. He uses pain. Uh, the world is a painful place. He didn't send it. He allowed it to exist. Pain is the, the result of of death and sin coming into the world. And he sustains it, he uses it, and there is no reason to think that if we are in the will of God, we're going to miss it. You will not miss it. That's just not going to happen. Pain is part of life. We know that because Jesus experienced great pain, and he told us straight out, a servant's not greater than his master. If I'm going to do it, you're going to do it. Um, but he uses pain uh, for his own glory and for our good. He, his sovereignty includes uh, weather and work. Uh, this is funny. I, I say this because what seems more chaotic than weather, right? So uh, one of the verses I want you to write down is Acts 27, 28, uh, maybe 26, where Paul's, Paul's on a boat, right? They're taking him to Rome. And this storm comes up. It's a great story. It really illustrates this well. Um, the storm comes up, and it's a terrible storm, and it goes on for days. And everybody is terrified. And then Paul gets a vision, and he goes to the captain, and he says, Great news. An angel of the Lord has appeared to me and said, None of us are going to die. And he comforts the entire ship. None of us are going to die. God told me himself, Nobody on this ship is going to die in this storm. We're going to be fine. Let's eat. Let's get you know gather our strength and we'll throw the rest of the food overboard because it's weighing us down, and but we're going to be fine. Okay, that very night the sailors who didn't believe Paul were like, "That guy doesn't know what he's talking about. We're going to die." And so they all sneak off and try to get into one of the lifeboats. The apostle Paul sees them, goes to the captain and says, "If they get in the lifeboats, we're all going to die." Isn't that funny? You just want to go. Well, which is it, Paul? First you say, we're not going to die. And then you say, well, if they get in the lifeboats, we are going to die. So which is it? And the answer is, yeah, both. We're not going to die because you're not going to let them get in the lifeboats. 
If they that we're not going to die because those sailors who are skilled at doing what they do, they're going to save us. And part of us not dying involves me telling you right now to go stop them. So the captain stops them, cuts the lifeboats away, and they all survive the storm. The boat doesn't survive, but they do. It God uses our work. He works. He, he works through what we do. We don't just sit around and wonder, oh, I can't wait for the Lord to redeem the world. He, he works through us. If we want, I mean, it's amazing how many times the answer to our prayers is for us to get up and go do something. You know, you're praying, Lord, I just wish, wish I understood my children better. And the Lord says, well, then get up and go sit in their room. And quit correcting them all the time and just listen. Lord, can't you just magically do it? It's so much easier. Right? I had a professor, his grandson is a pastor down at, uh, or up at uh, New City Fellowship, Caleb Long. Dr. Long uh, was stationed in uh, in China, and he started doing missions there. He was there with the military, and he just is a missionary. Like, wherever he went, he wanted to do missions. And so he wanted to be able to speak Chinese so he could preach the gospel to these people. And he started. He got up under a tree, and he prayed for three hours for the gift of tongues, so he could speak Chinese. Didn't come. Got mad. Went down, and the uh, the mayor of this town that he was in was waiting for him in his house. He said, "Where have you been?" He said, "Well, I've been praying because I've been here for three hours. I want to, I want to trade language lessons with you. I'll teach you Chinese if you'll teach me English." That's not what I wanted. <laughs> Right? He works through our work. Uh, and he works through the weather, which is fun. He works through our sinful acts. Now, he's not the author of sin. He doesn't make people do sinful acts. But he doesn't tempt people to do sinful acts. But he sees that they're coming. He knows that if he upholds the universe in the way that it's going, that these sinful acts are going to be done. And he molds them. He directs them for our good, right? The most obvious case of that is obviously the uh, the crucifixion of Jesus. The people who crucified Jesus weren't like, well, the prophecy said we have to do it. You know, Psalm 22 says we have to pierce his feet and his hands, so let's do it. I mean, they were doing what they want to do. They were sinning. The, Peter says uh, in Acts 2, um, with your sinful hands, you crucified the Lord of glory. You did what God said you were going to do, but you did it by your own free decision in your sin. Uh, it was your you, your responsibility. He works through death. Again, he did not create death. Death is unnatural. It's awful. It is not escapable, and it is not his plan. And it's something that should be grieved. But even through death, he is at work uh, to bring us to redemption, to get us here and to bring us to redemption. Um, what do I mean by that? I mean, um, I'll, I'll, I'll explain it in a minute. But uh, he, he uses death, even obviously the death of Jesus, but even more um, commonly, just even disastrous deaths. I, I was in Mississippi during Hurricane Katrina, just the worst, worst thing I've ever been around. Just terrible. And um, it really caused a lot of people problems with their faith. And like, why would God allow such a thing to happen? 
But even just a few years later, you begin to hear all these stories. You know, you'll see a, a every time I see a bumper sticker that says LSU, I'm like, why do they move here? I wonder. It's always because of Katrina. And these people move here, and they they moved to different places all over the country, and they met uh, their spouses, and they had their children, and they got many of them got converted, and and these things that would not have happened if that hurricane hadn't. And the hurricane was awful. Don't get the wrong idea. I'm not saying the hurricane was a good thing. It's terrible. The death of a thousand people is a bad thing. But God did good things through it. Uh, he overruled it. And because it's so important, I'm gonna put it on the top. God uses our prayers. I don't know what the deal with Calvinists is. I think they just hate to pray. Uh, but we always want to use God's sovereignty as an excuse not to pray. It doesn't work that way. Like People are like, well, God's going to do what he's going to do anyway, so my prayers don't really accomplish anything, and I just need to be giving him glory. Like, that's bonk. You don't believe that about anything else, right? I mean, if, you're, if your daughter who wants to go to med school was just sitting watching television, and you're like, why aren't you studying your biology for your biology test? Well, if God wants me to be a doctor, I'll become a doctor no matter whether I study or not. Like, you wouldn't take that junk, right? You're trying to get in there and study. I can tell you right now, God doesn't want you to be a doctor because you're not studying. Well, prayer is just part of it. He does answer prayer, and there are things that he does because you prayed that he wouldn't have done if you hadn't have prayed. It's, it's, that, that's not any different than anything else, right? Is God sovereign over when you're going to die? Is he, does any bird fall to the ground apart from his will? The answer to that is no. Yes and no. Answer that question. Um, well, do you wear your seatbelt? Why? God knows when you're going to die. You can't change it. Why are you wearing your seatbelt? Because I don't want to die today. Right? I don't want God's method of calling me home to be having a car wreck today. And so I'm wearing my seatbelt. I don't know when he has planned for me to die. I don't want it to be tonight. I want it to be a long way in the future. On my bed. In my sleep. Peacefully. Not in my car tonight. And it's the same true it's true with prayer, but for whatever reason, this was is always like all those other things make sense to us and then like I said, I think we're just looking for an excuse to not pray. Or maybe because people have had bad experiences with um people of other faiths and they're like you know these people abuse prayer so we're not going to I'm not even sure you can abuse prayer anyway hope that makes sense now God does all this stuff um, for our good if you, look, if you read Romans 8 the whole thing but especially starting with verse 17 and it's, it's I gotta read it sorry we're just going to go do this, and it's going to take. A, we're going to go a little a few minutes over, and uh, it's all going to be fine. All right. So Paul begins to talk about a lot of these things, pain and death, and uh, he says in verse seventeen, uh, "We are children of God, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him, in order that we also may be glorified with Him." I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth airing to the glory that is being revealed, right? That's the other picture. He's bringing us to glory. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected into futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. So he, he describes the creation as standing on its tiptoes. That would be a literal translation of what he said. 
Creation is standing on its tiptoes. Every time you walk outside, the, the crows and the birds are looking at you going, has it happened yet? When's it going to happen? When are, is God going to take away the sin that has enslaved the world and, and, and bring us to full glory? The, the trees and the grass and the sun, it's all waiting for it to happen. Uh, because the, the whole earth has been, is in bondage, verse 21. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. When we are transformed, it will be transformed. And this whole picture of, of redemption is going to come, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Uh, all this suffering, all these things, it's like childbirth is bringing forth the, the fruit of adoption. Now jump down to verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray as we all, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Those, those nights when you're just overwhelmed and you, you, your, your heart is just breaking for your friends or for your family, for yourself, and, you, and the world is just so corrupt and, and you're just, you can't even get words out. All you can do is just, I just, Lord, just, Argh! And, and, and you're speaking a language when you do that, a language that the Holy Spirit gets, and he, he hears it, and he takes it to the Lord, your Father in heaven, and he interprets it for your Father, your Father gets it, and he answers those prayers. And as a result of that, verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all these things are working together for good, for, the, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those who... For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And then it goes on to describe the love of God in there. And, and, and what you see in, in that text and in other places, but most beautifully in this text, is that he uses all these things for our good, which is our holiness, right? So that we be conformed to the image of Christ. And to reveal his love. He who loved, did not spare his own son, but freely gave him up for us all. How will he not with him give us all things? All, all of history and, and then the redemption of creation. You see the, the three big purposes of history in this text. The redemption, the glorification of all creation. He's using it all for these three purposes to this end. It's not chaos. It's, it's, it's a beautiful symphony going to a place, going to it to with a purpose, with an end. Um, where are we? God executes his plan through his word, his actions, his providence. Pretty much done that. Uh, always leads to our good, the revelation of his love, the final redemption of the time. Perfect. Everything's perfect. All right. Um, let me give you a, a, some homework. Um, you'll like this homework. Uh, but to kind of summarize this, I want you to go home this week and uh, watch a movie from the 90s. It's profane. I, I hope that doesn't offend you. If it does, I didn't have anything to do with that. Uh, but it's called, uh, it's called The Game. It's uh, got Michael Douglas and uh, Sean Penn. And uh, what it is, 
It's Michael Douglas, this high-powered businessman who's got the world by the tail, but he's miserable. And he's about to turn 40, and 40 is, or 50, whatever. And that's the age that his father was. Uh, his father committed suicide on his 50th birthday. And that's coming up, right? And so Sean Penn gives him a gift, and the gift is the game. And the point of the game is to figure out the point of the game. And so he goes in and gets all these tests run, and these people start kind of invading his life. And, uh, and he goes out on this date with his... I can't remember what he, how he meets the girl, but the things start happening, and, and they get shot at, and he finds that there's the robbery, and, um, and he has to rush around with her, and, and they have to escape town, and she... Uh, they steal all of his money. They, they suck all the millions of dollars out of his bank accounts, and they, they've just taken everything, and he's drugged, and he's taken off to Mexico, and he, he literally wakes up in a shallow grave, and you see him kind of coming up out of the grave. This is rebirth. And he um, has nothing. He's just left there. He's all by himself, and, and all he has is his watch, and he sells his watch to get a bus ride back to his home. And he, he has to sneak back into his home. All the security codes have been changed. And uh, he breaks into his own house. And he goes and he gets the, the gun that's been hiding, his father's gun. And he takes it back to this the building where he first met the people in the game. And he's trying to find them. Their offices are all cleared out. There's nobody there. There's only this girl that he's been following around. And, uh, and she gets him to come up to the roof. And he pulls the gun out on him. And she freaks out. How did he get a gun? And she starts talking to this guy who's like her boss. How did he get a gun? I don't know. And then you hear this pounding on the door, and the door flies open, and Douglas pulls out his gun and fires, and he shoots his own brother. And his brother's holding a birthday cake. It was a surprise party. And he falls down, and there's just this enormous, you know, to do. Everybody's freaking out course and Michael Douglas just walks off the roof and he jumps just like his dad did and you see him floating through the air and this real peaceful look on his face like I am done with this and he breaks through this roof of this big glass uh, conservatory and he lands on this huge air pillow like stuntmen use right on the middle of the circle and he doesn't know what's going on. He's looking around. These security guards come to him and start brushing the glass off. He, you know, be calm. They check his heartbeat. He's okay. Now, this glass can still cut you. Be careful. All He looks around, and the room's just filled with all of his friends. And they're holding these invitations that say, please come to surprise party you know, for Michael Douglas. He'll be dropping in between 7.15 and 7.30. And, and through that whole movie... He's made nothing but free decisions. They never made him do anything. And he did exactly what they knew he was going to do when they knew he was going to do it. And, uh, and that's a great illustration for how God is at work bringing his plan to fruition. We are we're doing, you know, Cyrus didn't ask God. He did his own thing. We are doing our own things, but we're doing exactly what God wanted us to do when he planned for us to do it. And he is using all those free decisions. He's using all the pain in the world, all the, the seemingly chaotic things in the world, all the sinful acts in the world, even the death in the world. He's using it all 
to bring us to this place of of redemption and glory, just like He wants to. And that is the beauty uh, of the Calvinistic worldview. We're not, um, it's just not willing to God's not up in heaven going, man, I hope somebody gets saved. God's not up in heaven going, oh, wow, I didn't see that happening. Can't believe that guy got elected. Oh, no. None of that. He's, he's fine. He, he, everything that happened today, he was on. He knew it was going to happen. And that's a, that should be a tremendous comfort. And it takes the burden off him, right? We still do what we do. We still minister and we still serve and we still work. We still pray and we still love and we still serve. But if we do it with that burden off our We are loved and God is just there with us and He is just, just excited. Alright, so that's what that's 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 tonight's talk. Uh, I'm done. Next week we'll jump into these final four points. Um, I don't have time to get into that tonight. And we will talk about sin. If you want to do some reading uh, for next week, read uh, Romans chapter 3, read uh, uh, Genesis uh, 6, 7, and 8, read uh, Jeremiah 17. Does that sound right? The heart is desperate, Louis, could be beyond all known. Look that up. Read that chapter. Um, Let me pray for you. Father, thank you for being the all-powerful Lord, the Lord of love, and the Lord of grace. How awful it would be if you just left us to chaos. How terrible it would be if we were just in the hands of evil men and women. And there was no one there to overrule them and to even make their evil acts point toward a good end awful that would be. But Lord, we are in your hands. Nothing touched us today that wasn't already decided on by you. None of the mistakes that we made today were surprises to you, and you're going to use those for your glory. None of the sins that we committed were surprises to you, and you're going to use those for your glory and for our good. For our good. Father, would you help us to believe that? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.